Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 314 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the new AMC series, The Terror, based on the novel by Dan Simmons, who was our guest back in episode 96. And this will involve spoilers for all of season one, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Grady Hendrix, making his 13th appearance on the show. He's the author of such novels as Satan Loves You and My Best Friend's Exorcism, and his novel Horror Store, about a haunted Ikea, is being developed for television by Gail Berman, producer of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel. His nonfiction book Paperbacks from Hell, about the horror boom of the 70s and 80s, is out now. So, Grady, welcome to the show. Aloha. The next. <laughs> you did that on purpose. Then next up, we've got Erin Lindsay making her 10th appearance on the show. She's the author of the Bloodbound series of epic fantasy novels from Ace, as well as the Nicholas Lenoir series of historical paranormal detective novels from Rock, which she writes under the name E.L. Tetensor. Her historical mystery murder on Millionaire's Row will be published by Minotaur Books in October. So, Erin, welcome to the show. Thanks. Always great to be here. And also joining us today is Sam J. Miller, who you may remember from our panel on Sense8 back in episode 157, our panel on Taboo back in episode 256, and our panel on Cities and Fantasy and Science Fiction back in episode 307. He's the author of the novels Blackfish City and The Art of Starving, and his short fiction appears in magazines such as Lightspeed, Nightmare, and Strange Horizons. His work has received the Andre Norton Award and the Shirley Jackson Award. So Sam, welcome to the show. Hey. <laughs> Okay, and so I want to start off with Grady, because I know, Grady, that you've read the novel, The Terror, that this TV show is based on. So I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about what what are your impressions overall of the book? Of the book? The book is very long. Um, It's also, it's a Dan Simmons book, so that goes with the territory. And it's one of those books that's good to read in the summer because it's super duper refrigerated. I mean, there's so many words for cold in this (laughs) book um, that, that you get that by proxy. It's not my favorite book. Uh, I really feel like it, for me at least, it totally goes off the rails at the end and gets very woo-woo mystical, which I didn't really like. I actually have to say, even though I hated the first few episodes of the show and thought I was really going to stop watching, I wound up liking the show a whole lot better than the book. It's still a good book. Lots of people love it. It's very, very carefully researched. And the only real criticism I think you can level at the book, um, well, Besides, are we allowed to spoil the book as well? Um, hmm, I didn't give a spoiler warning for the book. So how about don't spoil the ending of the book if it's different from the Well, I won't spoil the ending. But um, the relationship between Lady Silence and the, and the Toonbach in the book involves the Toonbach picking her up, giving her mouth to mouth, and then playing her like a bagpipe by pushing <laughs> air through her vocal cords. <laughs> and I really appreciated that the TV show didn't go there. Um also, the only real criticism beyond that you can level against the book is the book came out in the 90s, and um, it was a huge hit for, for Simmons. Um, but a lot of discoveries have been made about the Franklin Expedition since then, and so some of the stuff in the book and therefore the show have been sort of uh, um, uh, contradicted by some of the evidence they found later. But, you know, that's no one's fault. The authors don't get time machines, un- unfortunately. So unfair. I mean, I was actually planning to read the book 
uh, in time for this panel. And I, I even ordered it, but then it came and I saw it was 800 pages long. And I was like, <laughs> okay, I'm not going to have time to read that. Um, but That's what I like uh, about you, Dave, your determination. <laughs> Um, but no, so I'm, I'm glad that you, uh, you're you here, Grady, to you can fill us in on the differences between the book and the show. Um, but yeah, so how about uh, how about Aaron? Just sort of what, what do you think about this overall impressions of the show? Actually, Grady said he didn't like the first few episodes. What do you think of the first few episodes? Actually, I, I mean, I definitely my, my ears pricked up when he said that because I actually like the first two thirds of, of the show better than the final act. Um, I think I, I liked the ending. Um, which I imagine we'll get to in due course, but I, I thought the first two acts were, were stronger than the third act. But overall, I really liked the show. Um, I thought it was wonderfully tense and creepy. Um, I think the Arctic is a tremendous setting for this type of, of survival horror because it really taps into some of those primordial fears that we have of, on the one hand, that tiny claustrophobic space of the ship, and on the other hand, this vast, harsh alien landscape of the Arctic. And in certain ways, when I was watching it, I was like, you know, it's kind of surprising that you don't see that as a setting more. We're quite familiar with the mountains, with the woods, and other kind of isolated environments. But the Arctic was was really well used here to the point where I thought this was a show that made as good or better use of its physical environment to create mood than, than many others. Um, I actually, Sam, we were on the the taboo panel together. And that was another one where I thought the cinematography and the color palettes and all the rest of it went a long way to towards creating mood. And I think they did a good job with that here. Um, I also thought it was courageously slow moving. Um, meaning, you know, in comparison to a lot of shows, there's not a ton of action, particularly in some of those early episodes. Um, but it felt appropriate to me and I could sort of build on that later. But yeah, overall, I really enjoyed it. That's interesting what you say about the Arctic setting because th- th- I, I, that's that's true. But I imagine that it's re- it's just hard to film something that looks like it takes place in the Arctic, right? Because you, you basically can't film the ac- in the actual Arctic probably. And there's not a lot of locations on Earth uh, that have these snow, giant snowfields. I mean, it took, it took a pretty big budget, I think, and uh, you know, a lot of special effects and stuff to to set a whole show there. That's probably true. And we made the terrible mistake, the terrible, terrible mistake of buying this show in SD instead of in HD, which usually isn't an issue. But I feel like the network that we the provider that we bought it from was just giving us the giant middle finger of like, oh, you want it in SD? Have you some pixels? <laughs> so it was really the, the Arctic environment was when they were outdoors was particularly scattered and weird looking. But one thing I thought I noticed was that in relatively few scenes, did anyone have their breath fogging in the cold? And if it's like supposed to be minus 50, uh, that, that just, it was a huge thing for me. Where are the red noses and the sniffling and the running eyes and their, you know, anyway. You know, it's I listen. Nit- it's a nitpick. I li- well, I, I listened to an interview with the showrunners, and they talked about that as a factor, the fogging breath. But I, I can't say I actually noticed it in the show, although I, I wasn't paying super close yeah. attention. I'm Canadian. This is the kind of thing. It's it's in my blood. I know <laughs> what to look for. <laughs> uh, well, how about Sam? Uh, what do you what did you think overall impressions of the show? Would you recommend it? Well, first of all, I'm still stuck on Grady saying that, that we've had new evidence that contradicts some of the things that are in the book and in the uh, show, and I just pray that that doesn't include proving that there's no Tunbok, um, <laughs> because I really, really want to believe that that is real, um, and really nothing you can say can tell me <laughs> it's not. Um, I really loved the show. Um, I thought, uh, you know, similar to Taboo, it had a... Um, 
you know, this great feel of, um, being about uh, a period and, and re- representing it and, and sort of like looking at uh, imperialism and like militaristic nationalism in a lens that sort of highlights how you know, how damaged uh, that is and how much it damages individual men and their relationships. Um, I have a real love-hate relationship with stories like this because, you know, a bunch of dudes hanging out together, um, uh, especially in a really militaristic setting, can get really, uh, I don't know, um, macho and, and boring. Um, and if you're, you know, you think about a narrative like Moby Dick, which is sort of like about the intimacies between men and how, you know, we can tell a queer story in a setting, in a, in a world that's really hostile to them. Um, that, that's one thing. But then often, uh, in exploring the, the, the masculinity of a bunch of dudes, uh, often you can, you can give it a sort of aggrandizement or, um, uh, glamorization, um, which this show didn't really do. Um, I really, really loved, um, it's, it's sort of representations of of the the toxicity of 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 the sort of mindset of these of these folks, I love the fact that actually the Tunbach gets sick from eating them. Like they're so fucked up, they're <laughs> they're so uh, uh, flawed, and they're so full of horrible intentions um, and actions that eating them sickens it. Uh, and 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 yes, they're later on they're being poisoned. You know, phys- there's physical poison involved um, that poisons it as well. Um, but you know, I love that it had historically accurate sodomy. You know, often when we're telling stories about the about naval life it's like oh yeah and a bunch of dudes were on a ship together and they definitely were never fucking um and so you know i, I love that there was some some pretty pretty uh solid representation of of uh queerness um and uh yeah i think it was the this is probably apocryphal but they say that winston churchill was asked the secret of british naval supremacy and he said rum sodomy and the lash um so there's a lot of all those things in this show so i, I choose to believe that that's that it's accurate well can i make that oh go ahead actually let me just well yeah i mean i i wonder if uh i think that'd be a good uh board for this show for amc to use for season two you know historically <laughs> accurate sodomy um but no I, th- I thought this actually i guess there's not gonna be a season two with these characters so that's very optimistic of you though <laughs> <laughs> but I, I i i thought this show was was really terrific uh i i have some criticisms but they're all relatively minor but you were saying uh sam about all the 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 men and one of my one of my criticisms and I, there was no no getting around this but the fact that pretty much every character is a grizzled white man bundled up in coats and furs uh, meant that I, I really had a hard time distinguishing the characters okay, a lot of the thank, time. Thank goodness it wasn't just us. We were like, can we Same. get a ginger up in here? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody with freckles for the love of God. Who's that again? Yeah, and even like so, like um, Collins and Goodsir uh, oh, so look bad. very, very so similar to each other. Just do, even yeah. granted that they're all white men and so on. But um, but yeah, no, I like the show a lot. But so, uh, so Grady, I can tell you're anxious to get back in here. Oh, no, I was, I was just going to say what Sam was saying. You know, um, one thing that's really interesting is so all the way through the 2000s, remains and things have been found of the expedition. But – there are four sets of human remains that were found, I think, in 2013 that were part of the crew. I, well, it's hard to tell which ship they were part of the crew on, but they didn't have Y chromosomes. And so it's really strong evidence that there might have been women disguised as men, at least four of them yeah. serving in the crew. 
Now, hmm. that did happen in the Royal Navy. There are accounts of that. It could also be that the, the DNA samples were so degraded, uh, they couldn't find, uh, you know, uh, they couldn't find the Y chromosomes. But there is evidence indicative that some of the crew members were disguised women. Yeah, uh, some of the research I did indicated that that was relatively common for you know every ship to have a couple women you know right. um, disguised as men. But um, but, but I, I feel like we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Yes, sir. So for people who haven't um, you know read the book or maybe even haven't even watched the show and, and are just listening to this, let's uh, talk about. Could you just set us up, Grady? What is the uh, the actual historical context that this um, show is riffing on? So the historical context is Sir John Franklin's expedition to find the Northwest Passage. Um, and, and, you know, Arctic mania was huge in, in Britain in the 19th century. Um, it was, you know, in the 19th century, Britain's identity was about its navy and the strength of its navy and always has been. But with sort of no more wars to fight and everywhere had been colonized that they were interested in colonizing, the idea of exploring the north was really, really a huge national fascination. Um, and so Sir John Franklin's expedition was one of many that went looking for the Northwest Passage, which was this rumored uh, route uh, above Canada, between the Arctic and Canada, um, from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Because to travel from the Atlantic to the Pacific at the time, you had to go around the tip of South America, and I think the the, um, uh, the Magellan Straits, which was really, really dangerous and time-consuming. So there was this idea if they could find a Northwest Passage, trade would just be would just boom like a mofo. So lots of people went looking for it, and lots of people died looking for it. And Sir John Franklin seemed to vanish off the face of the earth. And it wasn't until a few years later that, that evidence of what had happened and, and the ships started to come up. But I think there was something like... Um, God, 29 or 30 expeditions that went out looking for Sir John Franklin's ships after he vanished looking for the Northwest Passage. And um, and while looking for him, they managed to map a lot of northern Canada and the North Atlantic and the Arctic and things. So a ton of information. He did a huge service to science by getting, by getting lost and dying. Um, and the last thing I'll say about this is irony of ironies. While... While Crozier, who was the other captain, there was Sir John Franklin on the Erebus and uh, Sir Crozier, Francis Crozier. On, I don't think he was a sir, actually. I think he was just Francis Crozier on the Terror. Um, while looking for them and while Crozier was still alive, a guy named Robert McClure actually found the Northwest Passage and became the first person to traverse it. Uh, but he came into it from the Pacific side rather than the Atlantic side, and he had to go on dog sled part of the way. So um, while Crozier was trying to breathe and survive and maybe breathing his last, someone actually found what they've been looking for while looking for him. Yeah, let me just pick up on that because I, I did a little bit of – just a little bit of research. And Crozier was a really interesting character because he was not nobility. You know, he was yeah. sort of, you know, middle-bred or something, I, I think they say in the show. But he was super competent. He was the best, you know, best ex – most experienced Arctic explorer at the time. And a lot of his expertise was not put to good use because yeah. the, they, they preferred to put power in the hands of, of people who were, you know, from be better – breeding and richer families who, who didn't really know what they were doing. Um, so like this guy, Fitzjames, um, had, uh, he, he, he staffed his whole ship with his, uh, Navy buddies from campaigns he had fought in the tropics. So the whole ship was all people who had no, 
experience really in cold weather. So yeah, there's a lot of interesting historical stuff like that. Do they mention on the show at all that Crozier was Catholic? They They mentioned that he's Irish. Yeah. Yeah. Because that was the thing that really held him back in his career and why he was never titled is he was Catholic. And there was still a huge amount of anti-Catholic prejudice in the, in Britain at the time. I believe the word you're looking for is papist. (laughs) A dirty, dirty papist. (laughs) Uh, I think there's some oblique references to it in the show, but yeah. But so I, I feel like we can't talk about Canada so much without drawing on the expertise of our resident, <laughs> resident Canada expert here. Um, yeah. so, 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 Aaron, what did you think about the, I don't know, just kind of the historical, I know you're a fan of historical fiction. What did you think about the historical milieu that this show created? I, I'm a big fan of historical fiction, and I'm especially a big fan of historical fiction with a sprinkling of the supernatural um, so this show really hit the sweet spot for me. Uh, my main reaction was, shit, why didn't I come across this one first? Uh, but clearly I'm many years too late for that. Um, it was interesting listening to Dan Simmons on a podcast that you referred us to, Dave, talking about, um, because it just very much resonated with um, how I how I went about the the historical fiction that I just wrote that you have a sense of, I want to set it in this type of place. I want to set it in this general time period. And then you go looking for something weird or unexplained. um, That's just kind of begging to have a novelist fill in the blanks. And, and I think he really found a a great story um, with the Franklin expedition, not least because there were so many gaps that needed filling in. And so that's really, that's really ripe. Um, and I think they did a really good job of that. Um, there are definitely some things I haven't read the book. Um, listening to the podcast was interesting because there are definitely some, some criticisms, some of them relatively significant that I have of the show that I wish they would have made some different choices. And it's interesting to hear how, um, those, those problems really arise out of the source material. And the, the makers of the show were conscious of those, those blind spots or those potential points of friction and did their best to sand them down, um, or to overcome them. And, uh, and I didn't know any of that watching it and I still had those criticisms. So to me, they, they obviously didn't repair the issue. They didn't address the issue. They didn't quite fix it. Um, and we can go into more detail, uh, on what I mean by that <laughs> down the line if you want, or, or we can do it now, but, um, but yeah, overall, I think it it was really, really interesting. Um, I think as much as I generally don't like to read uh, extremely verbose tomes, I almost want to read this one in the sense that you, you lose a lot in the translation to screen in terms of the research. You lose a lot of, they, they, I think they did a very good job of um, of creating atmosphere. They had a great use of sound with the howling wind and the creaking timbers and the crushing sound of the ice and giving that, that sense of physical constant pressure and threat. But at the same time, I would have liked to hear those millions of ways of describing cold or those millions of ways of describing the ice and to learn more about sort of the, the, the anatomy of the ship that they can't sort of by definition do in a show. But I imagine he really geeked out on in the book. All right, yeah, let's let's get to some of those concerns you mentioned a little bit later. But first, I just want to set up, you mentioned that this is a supernatural story as well. Um, and so, Sam, why don't you talk us talk about that? What did you think of the the fact that this was a historical slash supernatural horror story? 
I mean, they had me at historical slash supernatural. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I really love that element, those elements of it. I thought they were, they were really well done. Um, I think that, um, you know, when you're reimagining the past, you're always going to be adding things that are you, um, and your obsessions and fascinations. And so why not, uh, uh, uh amazing, terrifying, uh, bear spirit. Um, so, I, you know, I really love those. I feel like this, sh- just the setting alone set this show up to mine some really excellent horror territory specifically the thing one of my favorite movies mm. um and and you know this idea of a bunch of dudes most of them with beards um you know trapped in extreme isolation stalked by something terrible that sort of brings out their own worst pieces and 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 the worst parts of themselves um and struggling to survive both against a monster and an environment that that are trying real hard and ultimately succeed in in killing them um so, so yeah, I, 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 I had some things that I felt kind of that I knew were, that I was, they were problematic and they, some of them made me like uncomfortable or in like that I kind of liked them, even if they were kind of problematic. Like I have a very complicated history with gay villains. Um, so that's one I, ding family <laughs> so, feud. That's so, the first one that comes up. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, I actually am not anti gay villain. I will often, you know, sort of my, my sort of, coming of age as a queer person and seeing the only representation I would see would be like Dr. Frankenstein or Ursula the Sea Witch or any number of amazing queer villains. Um, and so I can get down with that. I thought that Hickey, as much as he's a despicable character, um, you know, I thought that, uh, him, I read him as 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 a gay man, not just somebody who is having gay sex as a matter of that's the only way to have sex um, when you're uh, with all dudes. Um, so I, I kind of like that you could have a character that that flawed and that complex and and also also gay. <laughs> but but yes, it's it's also feeds into problematic narratives. And I and I also am you know there's levels on which I totally see a critique of that. Um, and uh, you know there's there's definitely something to be said for not going that route yeah well can i just throw something in real quick in defense of the gay villain of hickey because i think also that was a a, probably a misstep on the the part of the showrunners but there is room in history to say maybe everyone on the ship was gay like sodomy and 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 relationships between men was rife in the Victorian Navy in the 19th century. And most officers, except for the biggest prudes, in their memoirs and, and later in life in their letters, really remarked on it as it was pretty commonplace and it really didn't bother anyone. And it seemed to go on almost all the time uh, and didn't raise many eyebrows. So um, so yes. you could say that they're all gay. <laughs> You could. <laughs> or at least and for maybe, the purpose of the voyage. And maybe you should have. And I think that that raises kind of the issue. Uh, and I also... I don't want to go too far down this path because I, I think like Sam, um, I think it could have been worse. I think it, uh, I, I don't have any problem either in principle with a gay villain, but I think that there are ways that you kind of need to manage these things. And I think if you are starting out with the narrative that is because of the setting that you've chosen and the story that you've chosen is of necessity, almost overwhelmingly, well, overwhelmingly, almost exclusively white dudes. I think you need to bring that extra level of care to the the diversity that you do represent. So, so that's one la- layer of it. 
Another layer of it was really interesting to listen to Dan Simmons on this podcast talking about how, in his mind, Hickey is not gay, nor is he just engaging in sexual activity with another man because that's all that that's all that's available to him. He's explicitly using sex as a means of manipulation. And in a certain way, I actually think that's it's a much better way of handling it. Either of those two things, like either either they show that this is something that's rife on the ship and it's not just it's not just Hickey and Gibson, it's not just I don't remember the purser's name. Um but the the nice old man um, who is sharing the literature and eventually becomes a doctor, um, that that it is it is more pervasive than that, or showing that it's a conscious manipulation tactic on the on on the part of our villain. Those actually make more sense to me than I think in trying to give the villain more depth and more um, more well rounded motivations and personality by actually making this a relationship as such. Um, I think they, they're getting dangerously close to a negative stereotype that they should have been hyper acutely aware of in view of the fact that they started from a starting point of all white dudes. Yeah. And I actually buy the argument. Um, and I think, you know, if you squint and look at it sideways, you see it on screen that Hickey is just using this to manipulate. But I agree that you kind of have to squint real hard and look at it sideways. They don't make that real obvious. And also, just before we move on from Hickey, I just want to say one thing I did really like about this show is mostly dudes. We don't know what gender the Toonbach is, if it has one. Um, but, uh, I really liked that it explored or allowed there to be a whole range of emotional relationships between men, um, whether it was, you know, a father-son kind of relationship, a relationship between equals, like what formed between Crozier and Fitzjames towards the end, um, a relationship of sort of like a, like a, an intimate friendship. I was never quite sure if the dude who becomes the doctor had a sexual relationship with the younger guy he shared literature with or didn't, but they clearly had what I think was a, was uh, intimate friendship was, I think, what the, the term is used. And, and that there was a range of everything from sexual relationships to manipulative relationships to, to real intense, almost romantic relationships that were just intense friendship. And you don't see that a whole lot. And that's one thing I really appreciated on this. Interesting. Okay, but so yeah, so if you're listening to this and you haven't watched the show and you're feeling a little lost. So yeah, so you have these two ships and they get stuck in the ice in the Arctic. And the crew starts to realize that there's this, as, as Sam was saying, a, a sort of a bear monster spirit uh, that's that's linked to the local Inuit um, culture um, that, that you know that they sort of interact with it. And so, in one of the early episodes, some um, some men are out on the ice and they're afraid, and they. Uh, believe that this this bear, quote unquote, is is chasing them, and they end up firing into the darkness and uh, accidentally kill an Inuit man, who we understand is some type of shaman who is able to control uh, this monster, and his daughter uh, is then the, the sort of job of controlling it falls to her, and she is not able to, you know, she she says as he's dying, like don't put this responsibility on me, I'm I'm not ready. And and she's not really able to control it, and so it starts killing the the men of this expedition, uh, mm. in a pretty expeditious fashion. <laughs> um, the um, 
And, and some of this, I was not entirely sure how much we were supposed to understand about the sort of quote unquote magic system or, or what was going on. But so the, the shaman has cut out his own tongue. Uh, does anyone understand exactly what was going on with that? Is there is there more to to understand there? I mean, I have read more about what that's supposed to be, although I don't think that we were given all, a lot more in the show. And that is one of my um, nits to pick is that I would have liked to understand a lot more about the relationship between uh, the Inuit in general, um, the Arctic in general with the Tunbok, but specifically also the shamans. What I read and, and Grady, you can correct me because you've read the book but what I understood was that in the book anyway, that there are, that the, the Tumbok back in the day was this uncontrolled destructive spirit and that the shamans are rather than controlling it per se in the sense of a puppet, like I tell it to do something, they're almost of the, of the seven seals kind of variety of magic. So there are six of these shaman and together collectively they manage to keep the Tumbok from wreaking havoc. And they, you know, they, they curb its, its worst, ten, its worst tendencies. But the cutting out of the tongue is a, a ceremony where they offer the tongue to the Tumbak. Um, and by consuming the tongue, the Tumbak acknowledges that, um, that they are one of the six shaman. Is that Ye- roughly right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the Tumbak's interesting because I'm not quite sure how much it's supposed to be an actual Inuit spirit, um, because there is something in Inuit religion, like a torn gok, which is like a bad spirit, but it, it doesn't have a physical form. It's, it's, it's a little bit different. So I'm not sure how much of this is freewheeling and how much of this is based on anything, um, real, but yeah, you're right. I mean, within the mythology of the book, uh, there are the, the, the mute shaman who cut out their tongue. I mean, the, basically the Tungak was, was created to be a weapon of mass destruction and wipe out the gods. And they fought it for like 10,000 years or something. And finally they gave it this physical form and threw it down in the Arctic where it's not going to bug anyone. And then they're like, oh shit, the people who worship us live there. And it just runs around and, and eats them from time to time, the Inuit. And um, they've got the the mute shaman who are able to negotiate with it, like you said, and, and direct it and redirect it and, and keep it sort of under control. Um, and that and the, the coming of the white men upsets this balance that they've worked out over the years between these six mute shaman and this Tungak, and that it, you know, goes wild and starts eating everything. And then, like Sam said, in the book, they make this really clear that it eats so many white people, it gets sick and dies. Mm-hmm. Um and another place the book differs from the show is that at the end, Crozier uh, does cut out his tongue and, and joins with Lady Silence to be a shaman controlling it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, but you're, you're basically, that's it. Yeah. So I, I actually have a quibble with the argument. I, I, I don't know, um, but I'm not entirely sure that she's completely unsuccessful in controlling it um, because I have a theory. You know, there's episode, I think, eight where she um, – discovers where, where Hickey essentially and, and co murder that group of, um, of Inuit people after Hickey has stabbed other white dude whose name I can never remember's, uh, chest a bunch of times. Um, yeah. So, 
she she sees their their corpses um and then later in the episode um while the you know the Tunbach attacks terror camp um and just like slaughters everybody and so i have i would love to believe that she was that she's sort of behind that um and in her grief or or anger um you know sort of made that happen um and that her failure in the end isn't necessarily um that she couldn't control it but that it died um on her watch as it were yeah I think it's, it's interesting, Sam, because I had exactly the same reading of that as you did, that, uh, that at least we're meant to question the extent to which she may or may not be directing the Tumbak in its actions. But in listening to this podcast, it sounds like the, the, the makers of the show thought it was really obvious that in that scene where she offers her tongue to the Tumbak, it rejects her. And I was like, well, I did not get that from that scene. <laughs> I didn't get um, that either. I thought it I, clearly, yeah. I thought so too. I thought that they were, they were bonded together. And that's one of many instances where I felt that they, they kind of underplayed their hand a little bit, that they could have been a little bit more explicit. And, and I say this and, uh, as somebody who generally speaking, when I'm having editorial discussions with my, my agent or my editor or whoever, they're the ones who are telling me it's too subtle. You need to play it up. And I, and I always complain about beating people's heads, beating people over the heads with things. But even for coming from that sort of default position, I found a lot of this stuff was understated, too subtle, needed to be a little bit more explicit if they really, if it was important that we understood that Lady Silence did not have that level of control, that she was rejected by the Tumbak, then they should have made it more obvious that that was the case. Um, but if I can go back to something that, that Grady said a minute ago, um, I'm not familiar with Inuit mythology at all, but, but based on just a little bit of research that I did prior to, to recording this show, it sounds as though the Tunbak and listening to the, the podcast and listening to Dan Simmons talk about how he developed the monster. It sounds as though the Tunbak is not that directly drawn from Inuit mythology, but is ah. rather kind of a pastiche of various different um, creatures and, and, and deities in Inuit mythology. And that kind of segues into the second, I think, uncomfortable issue with this. The, the other trope uh, that, they, that they flirt with a little too closely for my liking is the um, exotic magical aboriginal. Um, and I think they could have avoided that problem if they had grounded the Tunbak more explicitly rather than have a pastiche of sort of vaguely gesturing in the direction of actual Inuit mythology actually had it in an unedited way, drawing directly from Inuit mythology. Um, or at the very least, I would have liked the Tunbak to be fleshed out more as a character more embedded in that mythology. So we really understand to go back to what I was saying before, better how he fits in, understand his relationship to the shamans, understand his role in the landscape. Then at least you could say we're drawing from, from a real world tradition and a real world culture, as opposed to just picking up the lace and the frills from that culture and turning it into a Gothic monster. Okay, wait, just so just on the subject of how does the tune, what are we supposed to understand about how the tune block actually just works? So there's a part where um, Lady Silence, who is the the deceased shaman's daughter that I mentioned. So she says to Crozier, she says something like, "Why you want to kill yourself, you know what you have to do, and you don't do it when he's asking her, how do we kill the tune block? 
And I was just confused about what was going on there. Is, is there anything more to understand about what, what she was telling him he had to do there? Was she talking about the Tunbach or was she talking more about his alcoholism? Uh, well, no, she, she says, you know what you have to do when you don't do it. And I, I'm, I'm just, um, yeah, I'm inviting, I'm opening the floor if anyone has any explanation. Well, I'm with, this is, this is where I think I agree where it's, um, there, there's a, there's a dismaying, um, tendency in these shows to have Aboriginal people speak in fortune cookies. And I think you could really interpret that dialogue in nine billion different ways. Cause she could be saying, you've got to dry up and sober, get sober to lead your men out. She could be saying, you have Kill to turn yourself. back and get out of here. She has to be saying, you have to die. Like we have no freaking clue. And it's, it's sort of one of the problems where the Tunbach becomes very undermotivated. Um, I'm not sure, you know, it's a physical thing that runs around and kills people because it's pissed off, it's hungry, it's been directed to, it kills white people, it kills Inuits. Like, it's really, and it's the same problem in the book a little bit. You never quite understand the Tunbach and its rules, and it's sort of coming and going. It's like the 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 asshole ex machina, you know? It's like whenever we just need to kill a bunch of people by a total dick, we just drop in the Tunbach. Yeah, I had a question about the while we're talking about the magic system. Um, and Grady, maybe this is clarified in the book. What is up with uh, Hickey knowing to offer his tongue? Yeah, uh, to the Tunbach, dude. Uh, I don't even because he doesn't do that in the um, <laughs> in the book. Okay, but you think uh, Crozier does in the book. In the book, Crozier does, but he does it as sort of this gesture of because Lady Silence. So just. I'm going to just real quick, these guys go out over the ice, right, at the end, and they travel and travel, and they all die. And Lady Silence is cast out by her people because she's one of these shaman. And because the same way that Lady Silence was traveling with her father, the shaman, Crozier becomes the person traveling with Lady Silence, at least in the book, and you assume also in the, to some extent, in the show. Um, and in the, in the, um, book it's very clear he cuts out his tongue as a gesture of solidarity to continue like to say i'll i'll stand by you to her right 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 i think i mean it's interesting what you're saying about uh about the the tunbach being under motivated in a certain sense it's one of the things i appreciated about the creature um i and i don't know if it was necessarily intentional or if i'm overthinking it but the Tunbach is in some ways an excellent metaphor for the environment in which they find themselves. This, this new world that's so frightening and alien to the men. Um, the creature is mysterious. They don't understand its nature, but it's dangerous and they're terrified of it. Um, it's destroying them and yet they're also destroying it. So they're this insidious infection that's contaminating and, and, and killing the Tunbach slowly. And so it really is kind of a good metaphor for that, that environment oh, yeah. into which they've come. And so the fact that it's a bit inscrutable doesn't bother me so much. Um, the other thing that I appreciated about it is I think that they were relatively, they, they used a relatively judicious hand and when they deployed the monster. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, and they talked about this on the podcast and, and I had also noticed that, that, it is a bit ex machina, but they also don't, I think there probably would have been a strong temptation, if not outright pressure to, especially in a narrative that is by a lot of conventional standards, quite slow, um, to, to introduce the Tunbach anytime the narrative felt like it was slumping and they're like, we need to kill a bunch of people, enter ravenous polar bear. Yeah. And they, and they didn't, 
they didn't succumb to that temptation. I, I don't think too much. It, it actually is, it's, it's an ever present threat in a psychological sense, but we don't see all that much of it. And I think they handled that well. Yeah. yeah, you don't see it pretty much at all for the first four episodes. Yeah, and um, can I ask a question wait, about wait, actually, magic? Gonna, okay, wait, sorry. wait, 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 wait. I want to ask Sam though. Sam, you you said that um that the 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 Tumbok is getting sick because it's eating the corrupted white people interlopers, and um could you just talk about what it, what actually is is in the show that um c- communicated that to you? Well, I mean, so it's definitely um. Uh, deteriorating as it as it goes on and i actually don't believe that uh they were you know it keeps running into them and they do score some pretty solid hits on it but i don't buy that it can be so easily diminished by their attacks um i think that you know i just sort of think there's this i loved it as a villain as a monster as a as this force that is um you know they don't belong there. They have to be, they have to be destroyed. Um, and, and they're being punished for their sort of imperialist arrogance. Um, I'm all about punish them, punish pe- characters for imperialist, uh, arrogance. Um, but so it's, it's by the end when we see it sort of, um, you know, it's so diminished and so sick, um, even before it eats them because they are physically poisoned, um, that I, that I, I sort of felt like it was a bigger picture that the physical poisoning that good sir does to them, uh, in the end is, uh, Sort of a, ah. a, a like a meta like a making the metaphor really uh, actual um, for what's been happening to the monster the whole time. Like they can't kill it any other way than their own toxic selves. Yeah, actually, one interesting when when I was doing historical research, they said that the guns that they had were not well suited for this environment, and that some guy who went looking for Franklin's expedition actually found a polar bear with shots that they had fired at it lodged in its skin. <laughs> so that like they could just shoot bullets, you know, at the bear, and it wouldn't even penetrate the skin into the muscle, uh, let alone kill it, because well, their it, guns were just. Crying. They would have been balls back in that day, right? Like they wouldn't have had yeah. the tapered edge of a of a bullet. Yeah. You know, one thing I was I was just going to ask. So one thing that did confuse me a little bit is the show occasionally deployed visions. And we were always led to believe the few times it did that these were the visions of dying people or people, uh, you know, who were going crazy, except at the very first or second episode when Mr. Collins, who I think is the guy who gets lowered down in the diving suit to dislodge the ice from the repeller, he sees this vision of like a person or a monsterish person swimming towards him underwater. No, it was the, it was the guy who drowned, the guy who fell off the mast. Oh, it's the guy who fell off the mast and drowned. Okay. Well, no, I don't that- think so. Sorry. I think it was Mr. Collins. And I think he talks about it toward the end. Does he? Another one of my criticisms. So yes, and the early wait, wait, episodes. Wait, 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 Mr. Collins was the guy in the diving suit. Yes, and yeah. he talks about the vision he had toward the end of the show. But what does he mistaken. say the vision was? Because we're led to assume that there's some reality to it until we realize he's crazy later. Because everyone else who has a vision is on the brink of death and dying. This is a bit the thing, like I, I'm not, and in, in general, I kind of appreciate that uh, that. Um, ethos of you're never really sure if it's real or imagined. Um, yeah. and you know, you could have even gone that route with the Tumbach to some extent. Is it really there? Um, but I think again, this was a, a, a an underexplained kind of aspect of it. And one of the things I think it was you, Grady, who said at the beginning about the end of the book being all woo woo mystical. 
I actually found the end of the show a little bit woo-woo mystical. They they went for some very long, brooding, arty shots of the various characters dying. They they died for like 45, 50 seconds of screen time, and they all had some kind of weird vision that made no fucking sense. <laughs> you were just yeah. like, okay, so, all right, wait. This is a different show. What just happened? Totally. Totally. For me, that was actually how I, in, in arguing about this with my husband, that was how I rationalized Hickey knowing what to do with the Tunbach. Because throughout the show in the final episodes, we see characters having these visions because they're close to death or because they're terrified or because they've otherwise started to sort of breach the sort of uh, wall they built um, as Western imperialists around themselves and the natural slash spiritual world. So like my number one crush of the show, uh, Mr. Tozer, sees the Tunbach rip somebody's soul out um, and lives to tell about it. Um, and so I thought that Hickey's sort of, you know, whatever he does in the end is sort of, uh, he was able to see things and, and understand things because he could see the, the, the spirit world or the world of the Tunbach more clearly um, as, his, as, his, as he's dying. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I agree, definitely agree with Aaron that there were a lot of um, things that were t- way underexplained and, I, and it was a big uh, problem I had with the show. Uh, well, yeah, let me just because, yeah, I, I think that in the, the podcast that Aaron's referencing, it's called The Minds Behind the Terror podcast. If anyone wants to go listen to it, I think it's really interesting. But, yeah, they, they talk about how complicated the show is. And one of the guys says, I think there's 55 named characters in this show to give mm-hmm. you an idea of how much stuff there is to sort out. And, yeah, and they just mentioned things happening in the show where I was just like, wow, I had I don't remember that happening. And I actually went back and I was able to watch the first five episodes a second time. And there were so many things where I, I, I saw what they had been referring to. And I was just like, wow, I can't imagine how anyone <laughs> anyone caught that, that the first time around. Yeah, this um, is one so, of the so for, shows, for an so. example, I mean, one of the first uh, one of our first introductions to Hick, to Mr. Hickey uh, is he jumps down into a grave mm-hmm. and steals the guys, steals the ring off the corpse. But do you but actually only, see that? No, no. You just see him like it cuts back to him and he sort of like has his hands in his pocket and it sort of pulls it out. And, and yeah, I mean, I just, I, I don't know if anyone caught that the first time I would be amazed. Yeah, I did actually. I'm, ama- I'm amazed. But, but, amazed but me. now that you're saying that's Hickey, I had no idea that was Hickey because I didn't <laughs> know who the hell Hickey was when I was watching that episode. And I didn't remember that that was him. I remembered that it was Hickey, but I didn't remember any discussion of the ring before that. And I certainly didn't remember like when, when he, and I I listened to that same episode of the podcast, Dave, that you're referring to um, when he jumps down into the grave, I took that for a gesture of decency. One of many incidentally that he makes. And one of the things that is good about this villain. um, And even though we subsequently find out it wasn't a gesture of decency at all, but uh, but we didn't really subsequently find that out. So this is another one. Like I'm pretty good about this, about picking up little things and remembering them later. But when uh, when Goodsir finds the ring and he recognizes it, I was like, why does he know what that is? <laughs> I totally spaced yeah. on that completely. It did not land for me at all. And I can see the actor's face and all this emotion on his face. I'm like, this is supposed to mean something to us, y'all. <laughs> but I did not remember what it was at all. Um, but what I was going to say is that uh, those who are um, faithful listeners of the show will perhaps have heard me say on a number of occasions that I typically watch these things with my husband. And the two things that make him bail out are overcomplicated narratives and not being able to tell anyone apart. And this ticks both of those boxes, but he didn't bail. He loved it. 
So even though he's still, we, there was a lot of pausing. What's happening right now? <laughs> Who is that so. guy? <laughs> uh, he, he stuck with it to the end and still loved it. And when I was talking to him about being on the show and I was like, I'm going to, you know, point out this flaw and that flaw. He's like, okay, but it was a really good show. <laughs> he did not well, want me well, to, to criticize the show. Well, and for all we've said about Mr. Hickey, let me just say that actor was fucking amazing. Wasn't he yeah. great? He uh, was I, great. And and it was interesting in the listening to the creators talk about it, where they said every other actor who came in to read for that part read him like like the fangs were out, like he was a villain, and that that actor came in and was smiling through the whole thing. And they're like, oh, this is our guy because he just has that that effortless charisma, where where yeah, you almost think he's the, he's a hero or the hero for the first couple episodes, and uh, he sure does. If you're missing stuff, like I yeah. was, and he well, sure does know. think he's the hero, and he's a straight up <laughs> psychopath. I loved it. Well, you know, that's one of those things, you know, I really, really had a hard time with this show for the first few episodes. I'm a big sucker for history, especially 19th century, and I appreciated all the ways they they did the history without overselling it or overcooking it. But um, it wasn't for me until probably the fifth episode where Crozier decides to get sober and Mr. Blanky, who's my man crush in this, <laughs> loses his leg. To me, this is pretty awesome. Yeah. And to me, I felt like those first few episodes, I was like, oh, you know, this is just another show. Well, not another. I mean, there aren't that many. This is a show is about with these like dudes and they're doing something dumb and look what assholes they are and blah, blah, blah. And then and, and the person I liked the most in those opening episodes was Sir John Franklin, because as many bad mistakes as he made, he was also the guy who's like, we have to put a positive face on this. We can't walk around and get drunk and say we're all going to die. We're going to sing songs. We're going to have a church service. We're going to make the men. We're going to bring freaking costumes in a trunk to have a costume party. Um, and it wasn't until... Crozier gets sober, then I realize that this fits into my favorite genre out there, which is the same genre as the movie Gravity, the George Clooney, Sandra Bullock thing, which is good people trying to survive in a really horrible situation that is a crucible for their character. And and there doesn't have to be a bad guy, even though in this there are some, but I'm not sure Hickey's as much a bad guy as he is someone whose mind sort of goes... And the worst parts of his character come out in really excruciating and extenuating circumstances. I mean, the Tunbach's kind of a dick. Um, but, but to me, this became a show about decency and people trying to do the right thing and trying to be smart and trying to solve problems. And that's what I loved about the second half of this series. Let me just say, Grady, about Franklin. It's interesting going, you know, Sir John Franklin, going back and watching the first couple episodes again. Literally everything he does in every scene is as misguided as it could possibly be. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But, but you can tell that he, he genuinely loves and cares about his men, which makes him very sympathetic and, yeah. and gives you a like not the typical not what your typical impression of a character like that would be. Yeah, he comes I and tries to bury sympathetic. Well he comes and tries to bury the hatchet with Crozier, and Crozier's too drunk and jerky to do it. Well, but Crozier's also right. Sorry. Yeah, but, but there's, but Crozier's also wrong in the sense of Crozier's right, but he's not a good captain. It's not until he gets sober that he's right and a good captain. And by them being right, sort of academic. 
Hmm. No, I disagree. I thought Franklin was a terrible captain, as evidenced by the fact that he like makes every decision wrong and doesn't want to send a party to like ask for help because that would be defeatism. Like he does everything wrong. The show for me, uh, as, as I said, they had me at monster, um, but it really took off when we see him die in episode three. <laughs> it's this amazing, amazing death they give him. Yeah, um, and and like so he to me sort of embodies the sort of uh, you know anti Irish. Uh, uh, anti-Catholic, uh, anti-everybody, British imperialist mindset in a in a in a way that was really horrific, and that Ciaran Hines is a skilled enough actor to make that compelling and entertaining, and he doesn't feel like a villain; he feels like a jolly good dude. You know, we find out later, uh, as my friend Liz reminded me, that he but when the when they were tugging the sledge on a previous expedition, he rode in the sledge instead of helping to carry it. Um, so yeah, 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 pretty villainous in a in a cheerful, happy uh, kind of good old boy way. I I didn't read him as a villain, but I definitely didn't read him all that sympathetically. I think that all the decisions he made were ultimately in service to his vanity. And although I did not doubt the sincerity of his love for his men, it was nevertheless eclipsed by his love for himself and his need to redeem himself for whatever happened in Van Diemen's Land, which, if I'm not mistaken, is Tasmania. Yeah. Uh, whatever previous posting he had, um, and, and he needed to cover himself in glory. And so all of the decisions he made were, I think he was intellectually aware that Crozier was right, that if they did not leave now, there was a great chance they were going to get frozen in, in the ice and, and all of their lives would be put at risk. But he needed to roll the dice because he needed, he desperately needed it to work. Um, but to go back to something Sam said, one of the things I think the show did really well, uh, when survival horror works the best, it's a study of how civilization and, and morals either break down or at least uh, um, come to light or are shown in their most primordial states under these kinds of survival pressures. And to have that play out, um, you know, you start, you could not start with a more regimented, hierarchical, orderly, very definition of order, um, a more orderly environment than a British naval ship in 1845. Um, so you start out with the, you know, the, the Rubik's Cube is tight. Everything is, is perfectly regimented and slowly under this inexorable glacier that is the Arctic grinding them to dust. You see their sort of their true selves emerge and how and how each of them copes with that. Um, and, and I think the show did that very well. What Sam was saying about the the actor who plays Sir John Franklin, I just want to note that I thought every actor pretty much in this was fantastic. Fantastic. But it was funny because every actor who shows up on screen, I'm like, oh, I know that guy from some, so-and-so. Game he's a great actor. It's yeah. I have no idea what his name is, but I know he's a good actor. But it was but so I great to... to see Caesar and Brutus together again, <laughs> playing essentially the same characters. And I'm going to say, I thought everyone was freaking great on this show, but Jared Harris, who plays Crozier. Knocked it uh, out of the park. Oh my God. He was amazing. And he's made this thing about playing daddies you know he everyone wants lane price to be their daddy everyone wants you know he plays queen elizabeth's daddy in uh the crown like he's the good daddy <laughs> well let except me... on fringe when he was a really awesome villain and I never expanse. Saw he's not he's not great in the expanse oh, that's right, right. Oh, i didn't realize yeah. he was in the expanse okay yeah oh yeah the expanse over to you great, dave great great show by the way <laughs> Um, but no, I want to mention too, though, we haven't mentioned that we, there's sort of this subplot where, um, Franklin's wife and 
Nice. Yeah. Right, are, are back in London trying to drum up support for a, a rescue party. And uh, I thought that was interesting. I thought, it, you know, it was in, uh, Charles Dickens makes a makes an appearance. And one thing I noticed rewatching it is there was the okay. So after the, I'm sure Grady knows this, but after the um, the expedition was lost, these rescue parties went looking and heard from the Inuits that the um, some of the people had resorted to cannibalism. And when these accounts came back to London, people just couldn't believe that you know British naval people would 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 do that, and so um, started saying, "Oh, well, the Inuits must have massacred them." Uh, and Charles Dickens actually said. Um, we believe every savage to be in his heart covetous, treacherous, and cruel. And they actually put that those words into the mouth of Fitzjames in this show. It's taken mm-hmm. directly from from this art, uh, you know, op-ed or something written by Charles Dickens. And actually, the one thing they did get wrong with that, because, every, you know, I always find it kind of heartbreaking that Dickens, like, he just couldn't believe a British person would be reduced to this. And they found remains with tool marks on the bones, I think, since then, that pretty much confirmed that people were eating people towards the end. Um, but... Uh, Lady Jane really wasn't the only person looking. The Admiralty actually offered, I think, a two million pounds reward for the rescue of Sir John Franklin almost from year three, from the beginning of year three. And and I think it was like one million pounds just for information about his whereabouts. So even though she really undertook a huge labor to fund private vessels and raise money to send search parties, the Admiralty wasn't just sitting around twiddling its thumbs either. Well, actually, speaking of people eating people, uh, I will say one of my other minor criticisms of this show is that I'm pretty uh, squeamish when it comes to gross-out kind of stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah. And this got too gross. The last couple episodes definitely got too gross for me. You know, I, I, I had to kind of, like, put my hand up in front of the screen. Uh in, in the places. early episodes, when we when there's like all these scenes of the officers eating dinner and there's lingering close-ups of the cutlery and the nice plates, and I'm like, you're going to be eating people. Uh, <laughs> well, and I love that they the- take the plate settings with them and they're eating like, you know, human meat off of them. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's actually one of the interesting historical facets. I'm sure, again, Grady, you could say, but they, they took, and I guess this came up in the podcast uh, the, that Aaron mentioned, but they took like, what was it like? Like cutlery and china and yeah. rods and like 900 pounds of chocolate that they never ended up eating. And like, uh, yeah, there's just sort of weird stuff it, like it that. It was weird, but I, I have to say they eventually were um, vindicated in the choice of cutlery because Blanky decides to wrap himself <laughs> in forks. Yeah. And what is undeniably the best, for me anyway, the, absolutely it. the best scene where he's sitting there wrapped in supper forks waiting for the creature yeah. to eat him and he's like where have you been the <laughs> bastard he previously he previously had asked for 50 forks and i was like oh he's lost his mind i, no, I thought so he too. actually does have a plan <laughs> crozier's like sporks that's why i love blanky blanky I'm, was awesome just to throw in another quick historical thing so one thing the show never talks about is when the guys abandon the terror and go out on their quest where they ultimately all die they leave behind about eight or 12 people on the terror. And in the show, we never find out what happened to them. And they actually found the remains of the terror a few years ago, almost, I mean, it was sunk, but it was almost perfectly preserved. And they, and it was way, way off course. So the ice had actually melted and lit it free. And 
actually it looks like until the point where it sunk, the people who were on it were actually not only surviving, but surviving very well and actually making a good attempt with the small crew to sail their way to uh, safety. Hmm. It's it's interesting, uh, just as a sidebar, you know, sailors are notoriously superstitious. I found these ship names, both of them, very <laughs> odd choices for ships. And I, understanding that, you know, their, their backstory is warships, terror does not sound like a ship I would want to sail on. And Erebus is like <laughs> part of the Greek underworld, if memory serves. It's that these are, you know, if you're a superstitious Well, because they're unleashing sailor, hell on their enemies, right? Isn't that I the guess. idea? Well, it's also like, it's also pretty badass, right? Like, who wants to be firing bombs at a bunch of stupid Americans from something named, like, the Guinevere? You want to be on, the, like, I'm on the frickin' terror. Like, you know, <laughs> my leather jacket says terror on the back. Look at me, shiny buttons. <laughs> uh, Sam, were you going to say something? Just, yeah, they're wreaking ha- uh, hell on their enemies until they come up against, you know, real terror uh, in the form of a monster. Yeah, I mean, if it, like Dan Simmons couldn't have written a book with the title The Terror unless it had had a cool name like that. I mean, it, yeah, if it, it, if, great, if it was like the Guinevere, like yeah. nobody would ever write a supernatural horror story about that. <laughs> it definitely wouldn't sound as macho. <laughs> Isn't that what's important? I think it is. <laughs> Wait, so Grady, while we're on the subject, so what is there anything else to add about recent you, you said there have oh, been a bunch of recent discoveries that have kind yeah, of falsified well, well the the biggest well not the biggest, but the one I think is is sort of the outstanding one is so most current research thinks that lead poisoning had nothing to do with any of this. Um the, yes, there was a cut rate um uh supplier who got the contract for the cans and really screwed them up because in the show, they make a big deal that the cut-rate supplier supplies all these cans where the lead solder has run into the food and contaminated, and they're all getting lead poisoning and, and going loopy. But most people, most researchers now think that the high rates of lead in, every, in the remains, in the bodies and the remains they found were pretty much because that was just the high rate of lead and the environment back in the day. And... Um, that what probably had, and they felt like there was no way the amount of lead that was from those cans that was leaching into the food was in high enough quantities or concentration, even in three years, to to have had any kind of like massive effect on people's health. What they think was more likely is that zinc poisoning from a lack of eating meat weakened everyone's immune systems to the point where um, when tuberculosis broke out and some other like infections and diseases, they just race through people like corn through a goose. Yeah. I mean, and that just, that resonates. I, I am not at all a doctor, but um, in my, in my previous life was an aid worker and what you tend to see in, um, in refugee situations or in, in situations where you have displaced populations or populations that are, that are suffering from, from malnutrition the malnutrition is basically the, the thing that weakens everybody. And then you get some sort of acute respiratory infection um, and the combination of those two or, you know, some other communicable disease that the combination of those two is absolutely devastating. I thought they were, weren't they eating salt? Pork? I thought their whole diet was like salt pork or something like that. Does that not salt beef? Either? Oh, yeah. Salt beef. I mean, that was what most of the British Navy ate, Irish salt beef. But, you know, they also talked a lot about, about scurvy. And although it seems like this took place at a time when they had already understood the connection between citrus 
um, and warding off scurvy. They, they made some remark in the show, which, you know, I, I don't know anything about, um, but they made some remark in the show to the effect that after a certain period of time, um, even the lemon juice that they're carrying to ward off scurvy loses, um, loses its vitamin C or whatever it is that's, uh, yeah, that's warding off the scurvy. So, you know, whether it was zinc or whether it was vitamin C or whatever the nutritional deficiency was, um, it just seems to me intuitively that that's a very likely explanation for how your immune system gets to a point where just about any opportunistic infection can sort you out really fast. And in those, of course, cramped conditions, it just spreads like wildfire. But yeah, it was funny, though, that the the supplier of their canned goods yeah. was apparently two years after the fact was found guilty of fraud or something. And it was really, really bad. Like, apparently, there was there were cases where he had just filled put rocks in the cans. I mean, Jesus. it was like out of control. Well, you know, and one thing they don't talk about this, but you just mentioned it a second ago, Dave, was this idea that, you know, most of what the British Navy was like, if you want to think of like, like the fuel of the British Navy, if these ships are rocket ships, what the fuel is, is not like liquid oxygen. The fuel is the food that's feeding the men. And most of it was beef from Ireland that was heavily salted and canned. And that beef in Ireland and the production of that beef in Ireland is what caused the Irish potato famine, which was raging in its worst years during the John Franklin expeditions. Um, so, you know, the, the, the beef that powers this Navy on this quixotic quest to wind up finding a passage that no one, no one ever even sailed through the Northwest Passage without an icebreaker in front of them until like 2008. Um, like it was a useless passage. But what fueled it was basically wiping out hundreds of thousands of people in Ireland through famine. Sorry, what was the link between the beef and the and the blight? Oh, okay. So, well, so what happened was um, in Ireland, uh, as they took o- as as British landlords took over the the common lands and things and made more and more farmland, grazing land, the potatoes became more and more and more the number one crop in Ireland because a lot of the grazing land and the common land and everything, all that was getting exported, and it made Ireland more and more dependent on potatoes, and it made it more and more this this main staple of the diet. So when the blight broke out and everything that there wasn't anything else to fall back on. Everything they grew, or a large part of what they grew, was beef for export to the British Navy. It wasn't the sole cause, but it was a definite contributing factor. It boggles, though, doesn't it? The, you know, And they, they actually list at certain points in the show, it, it boggles the mind to think about the stores and the rations that they must have had yeah. to bring with them for an, any voyage, but let alone, I mean, they're frozen in this ice for, what is it, three or four years or something like this? And just the fact that they're, I mean, they're steamships, first and foremost. They have yeah. steadying sails and they can run under sail if they, if they need to, but they're first and foremost steamships, which means that they're coal powered. And, and just the concept, first of all, the concept of having a, a coal fired boiler in the belly of your ship, what could go wrong? But anyway, so the, just like trying to get your head around the mountains of coal and the weight of that let alone the food stores and the water and the lemon juice. And well, that's something they never talk about is fresh water. Like, think of how much fresh water they needed on these trips. I think once they got there, there was a lot. So, so, <laughs> so wait, so I actually wrote this down. They had 32,000 pounds of salt beef, 36,000 pounds of biscuit, uh, 3,600 gallons of concentrated spirits, and almost 5,000 gallons of ale and porter. If you're wondering how much... Uh, 
Jesus, thirty-two thousand pounds of salt beef. And how did they control the vermin? Like I know they had the cats, but you know, with all due respect to our feline friends, there's only so much they can do. And some cats will eat cockroaches, but I mean, I just can't imagine the amount of vermin that there must have been in that hold. There's a lot of talk in the book about the rat situation and also the supplies situation, and how as you use up the coal, you're disrupting the balance of the ship. Right. Um, and, and all that. So you should definitely read the book because they, they really goes deep on that stuff. See, I want to get Sam back in here. Sam, is there anything else just about the, the show at all that you, uh, any other thoughts you had that you wanted to mention? Um, no, I mean, I think that I really, I found it really surprising and I thought the storyline was really good and, and I thought it was scary and I liked the way it kept subverting expectations. And, um, you know, I'm always, always, um, excited for for a, a good anti-imperialist narrative in a mainstream show um so you know i i i don't have a ton to add you, you said you watched it with your husband yes like what kind of stuff did you guys talk about or whatever while you were watching it we're trying we you know it was a lot like like aaron uh, a lot of pausing and like wait what <laughs> uh, and uh <laughs> Wait, I think this is what happened. And wait, so, and also my husband was really annoyed with me because every single episode I had to watch with subtitles. Cause oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I don't, oh, I did I don't too. know if it's my punk rock days, um, if I'm going deaf, but, uh, I could not, I didn't know what anybody was saying. And he, <laughs> he wasn't having no problem, but I needed the subtitles on. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, I, I def, cause, well, cause you have the accents and then you have just the, the historical, weirdness and then just the british idioms and yeah yeah just yeah. all that stuff together. all those things together. i was subtitling it all the way <laughs> we subtitled it also and we we blame it on we got a new sound system and the speaker just the dialogue gets drowned but uh but i suspect we might have done it anyway but i, I mean i'm not i'm i'm not a brit i like to think i have a fairly sensitive ear for accents but Boy, Jared Harris crushes him. <laughs> I have heard so many different accents from that guy, and they all sound perfect. I don't know what his real accent is, but whatever. He's probably it is, from like he's probably from like Oklahoma. <laughs> yeah, that was another level of meaning. Like there was a lot of this show that I just had to be like, okay, I'm gonna let this wash over me. I know I'm missing a lot, and I know that there was probably so many, so much narrative being conveyed in the different men's accents and like mm. what it revealed about their class and geographic origins. Um, and I just felt totally unequipped. Part of my greater sort of like, which, which white guy is this, uh, problem yeah. was, yeah, the, the accents were probably conveying information I was not prepared to, uh, receive. Well, and that's fair enough. Like a lot of the characters definitely had, uh, Northern accents though. And between that and all the snow and the music, which I think they did this on purpose, there was a lot of Game of Thrones vibes going on there where I just I just felt like we were in the north. <laughs> I was expecting to see dire wolves at any moment. Jon Snow up on the prowl. <laughs> that would have been brooding. Awesome. Brooding. With his one Jon Snow face. That's has, probably who just has probably, one face. <laughs> that's probably who Colin saw underwater in his vision early on. <laughs> Tunbach has glowing blue eyes. <laughs> Somebody mentioned earlier that this reminds I now I don't remember what it was, but that this reminded them of something else. But this kind of reminded me of an Aliens movie. Oh, yeah. You know, it has that same... Ridley Scott. You know, it starts out and everything seems fine and every, you know, everything's under control. And then it just gets to a certain point where you're like, oh, shit, they've just... All control has been lost. This is Oh, just that's like, right. There was a Ridley Scott connection. He's an EP on this, isn't he? 
That's yeah. Right. Oh, I forgot about that. I mean, this is this is 19th century alien with an angry polar bear instead of a xenomorph. <laughs> it would have been great if somebody had just had that moment at the table with the lead poisoning, where even if something didn't burst out of their chest, maybe <laughs> they just just had a puke right at the end. But, you know, the thing I really, I just want to say, one of the things I really loved about this also was that as things devolved, you know, towards the end and they set off from the terror and abandoned it, I feel like, and of course I'm probably wrong and history's had its day, but you just had this feeling that if people had just stuck with Crozier, because Crozier really, he really became this character who believed in the system. And the system was going to work. And it was what was going to take care of them if they invested in it. And he was right as they left the ship. I mean, granted, the system's what got them into the trouble in the first place. But as they moved out into, you know, on their sleds trying to look for safety, if they just stuck with Crozier, Crozier was down with rule of law. He wasn't just going to kill someone. He was going to have a trial and execute them. He wasn't just going to take someone's word for it because they were British. He was actually going to use reason and logic to investigate what was going on. He was actually, you know, he was so, he believed in letting the men take all this puffery stuff, these china and these curtains and everything, because he knew they'd leave them later and it made them feel good. There was something I really loved loved about the fact that Crozier sort of leaned into the structure and the hierarchy and, and it's what was saving them. And he bothered to learn the Netsalik language yeah. and he had respect for them and their, their, the fact that they, uh, you know, his mentality towards the Inuit was really different from, from Sir John's. Right. Exactly. Well, and you think if, uh, Mr. H- if just Mr. Hickey had not been on that ship, how much differently right. things have gone. Well, I mean, you know, one of the things I love that Crozier does later, and, and it's such a tragedy when no one listens to him, is, is even though it's not the right or most expedient or the smartest thing to do, we aren't leaving anyone behind. You know, he insists. And so when you get to that later scene after he's taken captive and the group has just decided to abandon the sick people and this train behind them, you can see everything falling apart. And, and Crozier's thing is we have to keep it all together. Um, we're stronger together. I think I heard that a few years ago somewhere, like a slogan or something. <laughs> but but I love the fact that you have Hickey who's telling everyone what they want to hear and, and all this stuff. He's just talking whatever bullshit will, will sort of get him what he wants and scratch his itch and he's saying what they want to hear and you have Crozier who's like we've got systems we've got laws we've got ways we've got morals and values and we're going to stick with those and when we fail those will carry us I think too my own take on it was that some of that changed over the course of the show and some of it was him kind of learning from the example of Sir John because yeah early early in the show Crozier's very much about this is the pragmatic thing to do mm-hmm. um this is what we need to tell the men this is the situation in all its ugliness um and Sir John was much more about I mean this is the guy who brought carnival masks he was much more yeah. about morale he was much more about um brotherly love he was much more about this is you have to understand the importance of morale. You have to understand the importance of image. You have to understand the importance of maintaining a positive attitude in the face of strife. And and Crozier seemed to, to me at the beginning to be less receptive to that sort of um, idea. And as he becomes more seasoned with having those responsibilities on his shoulders and his alone, he comes to kind of embrace that and see it much more clearly. And I think I think that resonates with 
I mean, certainly resonates yeah. with me and probably anybody who's been in a, a professional environment or even a personal environment, I guess, where you're making that transition from, from middle management where you, you know, you know what's up. <laughs> um, and you're, you're taking a very pragmatic view of everything. And, and the more seasoned leader is like, slow your roll. Uh, that's all important. But some of these symbolic things are important too. And, and a, and a good leader understands that the more experience you have, the more you, you come to recognize that what at first came across as superficial or fluffy or, or naive even is not that at all. It's understanding the power of symbol. It's understanding the power of, of your, your mental outlook and how that plays into all of it. So I felt like that was one of the things in Crozier's character arc that did develop over the course of the series. And I think you're right. That's something he learned from Franklin. I think, I feel like the, the, the other big transition with him is that he starts the show as a man who's been totally poisoned by f- the frustrations and bitterness of like, because of who he is, mm-hmm. um, he cannot, he can only advance so far. He'll always be at best a second. Um, and he can't marry the woman he loves and he'll be looked at contemptuously by his, um, by Sir John and, and others in the sort of admiralty, um, because he's Irish and, and a Catholic. And, um, and so he's sort of settled into this, like, I'm going to do my job. I'm going to drink a shit ton. I'm going to be like a highly functioning alcoholic. Um, And it's only when, um, uh, you know, he's forced to by leadership to, to sober up that he sort of transforms. And I actually want, feel like the transition, the transformation that he makes is in opposition to Franklin because Franklin is a man consumed with the idea of glory, um, and, and winning this thing for himself. Um, and if, if for him keeping morale high is a priority, um, it's less because of, you know, he cares about the men's feelings than because that's what's going to get him home safe and, and triumphant. Remember, he was you know, he didn't help carry the sledge. Um, Damn, that really it, stuck it had with to you, abandon. man. <laughs> yeah, man. I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter. So, so, I mean, I think that the thing that I love about who Crozier becomes is he becomes somebody whose only priority is the lives of his men. And he, you know, he's going to sacrifice himself to the cannibal savage, uh, traitor Hickey, um, you know, to, to save his men. And he's going to do whatever he needs to do because for him, the only priority and, and the, what leadership means to him is the well-being and, and lives of his, of his men. And I think one of the things that's interesting about his transformation is there's a part of it also that comes from, because uh, I think he gets part of that from Franklin, but part of it also from Jobson, who isn't Jobson who sticks by him and sort of yeah. nurses him through and talks about his mother being an alcoholic. And there's something, you know, and it's like, it, it's interesting to see him being changed by what's around him. And I wonder if at the end, and I've really thought about this, and I think it is his biggest shame for Crozier is what Hickey puts his finger on when he's about to be hung and says last words is that he was going to abandon ship and go, even though it was the pragmatic solution, even though it was the smart solution, even though he thought he was making that decision for all the right reasons. So no one else would get in trouble. You know, they discover those guys 15 miles away. They never made it. It was a waste. He should have been a captain and stuck with his ship. And I think he does feel ashamed that he almost did that. And I think it's so striking that, I mean, in that interview with the creators, they talk about how much they wanted to focus on character. And I just feel like it's it's just such an accomplishment that we're able to talk so much about yeah. the characters and their arcs in a story about, like, a demon bear killing them people <laughs> one by one. Because you would, you know, so like, it, I, I feel like so many treatments of this story 
the characters would all be just sort of disposable, one-dimensional ciphers. You know, yeah, that's a good point, Dave. Because not only not only just the limitations of the genre, but also the fact that there are so many named characters, as you mentioned, and we barely scratched the surface of some of them. I mean, Hickey, we could do a whole show on that guy. Um, just <laughs> in hardly- terms of trying to figure out what the hell is going on there. Um, we haven't even talked about Good Sir. Well, right, and so oh, Good yeah. Sir and and what's going on there. It, like there are characters we've we've you know not touched James Fitzjames all that much, although he wasn't one of my favorites personally. Um, but you know, I I I think you're absolutely right that within the limitations of the show um, and a limited series of ten shows, they've done a tremendous job of giving us fully realized characters, even. Um, is it is it Siren or is it Kieran Hines? I don't know how to pronounce. His I name. think it's Kieran. Um, he and and part of this is just I think a, a well a well seasoned actor. One of my complaints is they offed him too quick. As much as I wasn't sad to see his character go, he's just he's just so good in everything that he does. And and so you know credit to the actors too for for bringing so much to the limited lines that many of them were given. It's interesting because in, in when this was in development, there was a period, you know, it started out as a feature, if you can imagine trying to do this Jesus. two hours. And then at one point, they had it as a five season show. Uh, <laughs> that, if you that, that would that. have been a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I agree with everything Aaron was saying about the characters and everything we've all been saying about the characters. And that doesn't contradict the fact that I still had a hard time telling many of them apart <laughs> or remembering their names. It definitely. Um, even the ones whose, again, names I didn't know. I was like, oh, that guy. Oh, <laughs> he got ripped in half. That's it didn't it. help that so many of them had the mutton chops because that obscures so much of your face. So you start out with a dark-haired white guy, and this is bad enough, but then he's a dark-haired white guy with curly hair. So, oh, my God. And then you obscure half his face in mutton chops. And it's like, all right, I, I give up. This could be anyone. This could be good sir. This could be uh, what's his name? It starts with an M. Magnus, whatever his name is. <laughs> this could be Collins. This could be I just I just give up, man. But see, that's why you have to watch the show twice because on second viewing, everything is you know queer and especially uh, if you get it I mean, in HD. All, all the character, all the character stuff is queer, and it's worth it. It's definitely worth it watching it again. Well, you know, and that's, you know, and it's sort of one of the things I've realized sort of writing stuff is all that matters is having characters people want to watch. That's what kept me watching for, you know, these five early episodes and probably why I didn't like it until the fifth, because it took me that long to tell people apart and sort of get who is going where and to see them go from point A to at least point A, point five. But, <laughs> but that's what you're right. That's what dragged me through this show is the characters. They're really, I the Tunbach was fine, I guess, but like I really was there for these dudes. And almost it didn't need the Tunbach. It almost didn't need the Tunbach. It, it, like there was just there was so much kind of a horror in it anyway. Just the the sheer challenges of the environment and the situation in which they found themselves, and all these people in close quarters. And and I do think it's it's a slow burn. There's not a lot that happens, but it rewards that patience in the end. We haven't, we've barely talked about Lady Silence, who was an amazing character, and I thought they did a ton of great stuff. Although, you know, I, I share the, the critique, uh, Aaron raised about, um, this, this sort of mystical, uh, aboriginal figure, uh, being a trope that's often over, often, that's, that's used way too much and used poorly, and, and it, this could have been done better, but, um, I loved, I loved her, I loved her scenes. 
It's worth noting, too, that they hired all Inuit actors who were native speakers, I believe, of Netzalik. Um, so, I mean, they were, you know, making pretty serious efforts to. Yeah, uh, they to were. And they and they made it clear on that podcast that this is an issue that they were sensitive to. And, and I think I mean, again, some of it's down to the limitations of the source material. But I think Lady Silence was a great character. And if anything, she was underexplored. And that does it could have mitigated against that issue. I think that there's an aspect of tokenism um, that uh, not not in this show, just I mean in general that that when you're when you're of necessity flirting with a trope that could be considered problematic, um, that the extent to which you only explore that character in a very limited or superficial way exacerbates that issue. And so the more that you can put that character in context and give them a backstory and give them motivations that are clear, and, and I think that's my biggest criticism of, of Lady Silence is she is, even before she's silent, largely inscrutable in terms of what are her motivations. We get that she's a good person. We get that through the actions that she undertakes, particularly toward the end. Um, but we don't we don't really know what she's trying to achieve here. And and as a result of that, it comes across as being a little more two dimensional than you would like. Okay, so we need to start wrapping this up. I just also I just want to note that this show, for all of its sort of slow and historical and character focused, has been quite popular. Uh, I was has reading it? that it's yeah, it's the best rated show on AMC after the two Walking Dead shows and Better Call Saul. Oh, and so given that, you would expect it to maybe come back for a season two. I mean, obviously, it would be a different storyline. Um, and I think the showrunners are not planning to return because they just said they're just like, this was such a big scale to do this that they want to do something smaller. Uh, I, I don't know. You you make them all zombies and then it rolls right <laughs> into the Walking Dead franchise. <laughs> but 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 this is a prequel. writers of Walking Dead, take notes. <laughs> this, this is how you do this shit right. I mean, uh, minus zombies, obviously. Hmm. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I know, uh, Aaron has to go and yeah, we should start wrapping this up. Does anyone have any final thoughts they want to throw in before, uh, before we go? I'll throw out one. Um, I overall really, really liked the show and I am glad to see this tendency, at least I think it's a tendency lately towards limited run shows that aren't feature film length, but they're also not multiple seasons. I like this format of eight episodes or 10 episodes that gives you uh, an opportunity to delve a little bit more into the story without dragging it out and throwing in a bunch of extra bells and whistles that the story doesn't really need. So, you know, kudos to AMC for picking this up and finding the format that works. And I, I would love to see more of that type of treatment of some of our favorite works of fiction. Yeah, my husband says it's like a 10-hour film. You know, these limited series, they they have the, the sort of sweep and scope and often budget of, of cinema, um, and that really enables you to tell, like, amazing stories and explore amazing characters um, with awesome visuals and, and really great writing and all that fun stuff. Yeah, and I'm just going to reiterate what you guys are saying. Ditto. Um, because I do think having an ending gives the rest of it meaning. Um, and it's what manga has been doing for years. You know, I mean, these stories may run 60 or 100 volumes, but there's an ending in sight. And I think it really gives the, the whole series a lot more weight and a lot and makes it a lot more satisfying to know that this is ending. It's going somewhere. 
Yeah, absolutely. And again, like Aaron was saying, credit to AMC for greenlighting this show. I mean, I'm sure the budget was huge and it's a sort of odd, supernatural, Arctic historical thing. I'm sure, you know, that they, they're obviously like aiming to do something different and it's ambitious and just the whole thing I think is really well done. So if you haven't watched it, I would say go watch it. I think it's pretty cool. And yeah, but I think we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Grady Hendricks, Aaron Lindsay, and Sam J. Miller. So thanks, everyone, so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks. See you later. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Grady Hendricks, Aaron Lindsay, and Sam J. Miller for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Arturo Sanchez, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Arthur Brown, who just made a very generous contribution to the show via PayPal. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.